Well, hello, my beautiful baby angel sent from baby angel heaven, and welcome to episode 19 of Have a Blessed Gay, your weekly spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, the babiest of baby angels, Tyler Martin. On here, we talk about all things relating to religion and spirituality, while cracking some jokes along the way, because damn, these topics can be a lot. And we don't want to be breaking down all the time, right? Not in this economy, Amanda. As always, thank you to those who have subscribed and continue to share the podcast and have left reviews. It's so helpful and I really do appreciate it. For those who haven't yet, please do leave a quick review and make sure to subscribe. It's totally free and I'd absolutely be titillated for you to join us on this incredible spiritual journey. In our society, we go apeshit over gender. We're obsessed. Even before a human is born, everyone wants to know, are you having a baby boy or are you having a baby girl? We even have parties to reveal a baby's gender, which is basically a celebration of a baby's genitals. Like, it's kind of bizarre, right? Actually, no, it is. It's really fucking weird. And we don't just stop there. No, we predetermine a baby's interests and goals based on those genitals. Go online and search for baby clothing. We got boys clothes with dull earth tones, plastered with trucks, sports, and hardware tools. They have phrases like, I may I like a baby, but I'm a boss. Boys will be boys. Or one of my personal favorites, I'd flex for ya, but I like this onesie. Solely based on black and white pixelated genitals we see on sonograms, we predetermine and encourage people with penises to be reckless, dominating, masculine, physically fit, career-oriented, and devoid of emotion. Now baby girls' clothing, on the other hand. You'll find bright colors, a shit ton of tulle and glitter, butterflies, tiaras, and pretty strange phrases like future shopper alert, princess in training, or I like big bows and I cannot lie. Basically, they look like all the clothes that are currently in my closet. <laughs> well, except mine doesn't say I like big bows. But these people with vaginas are predetermined and encouraged to be nurturers, yet dependent, feminine, dainty, and of course, pumpkin spice loving maxinistas. Like, it's just so ridiculous that when I see a vest and a bow tie on a rack in a store, that I automatically know that that clothing was most likely designed to be worn by someone with a penis. Well, or Ellen DeGeneres. No one should be that concerned over people's genitalia, and we shouldn't be socially forced to advertise our genitalia by our clothing. That's creepy as hell. And while you're at it, check out the gendered toys. Girls have baby dolls preparing them for motherhood, while boys have building blocks preparing them for a degree in engineering. These defaults, these gender stereotypes, shape and inform our entire lives. And the craziest part, no person fully benefits from these stereotypes because no one person exactly fits these binary categories that we've created. Think of it like this. We have over 7 billion people on this planet and we expect them to fall under one of two categories, and if they don't fit into one of them, they are labeled as weird, lesser than, and even sinful. This leaves most of us often shamed, feeling inadequate that we don't fully match these man-made stereotypes, perpetuating a life full of traumatic experiences. We even predetermine people's sexuality. Straight is the default. As a kid, do you remember being asked by an adult if you had a crush on someone of the opposite sex at your school? I for sure was. Tyler, do you have a crush on a girl? Uh, Kelly Clarkson and Barbara Streisand? Uh-oh. With our society making the default straight, it makes it extremely difficult for people who don't fit that. Again, we have over 7 billion people and we're assuming they fall into one sexual category? Like, what the actual hell? And we see these stereotypes glorified in many main world religions. We have binary systems where men lead and women listen. 
these gender stereotypes are everywhere, and whether we are aware of it or not, everyone has been impacted by them. I am so elated for you to hear my guest today, someone who knows their shit revolving around gender, the wonderful Dr. Kyle Myers. Dr. Kyle Myers is a sociologist, educator, and globally recognized advocate of gender creative parenting. Kyle's TED Talk, Want Gender Equality? Let's Get Creative, encourages people to rethink childhood gender socialization in an effort to break up the binary before it begins. Uh, yes please. Kyle is a creator of RaisingZoomer.com and the at RaisingZoomer Instagram account advocating for letting kids be kids in an environment where everything is for everyone. Kyle has been featured in articles in international media, including New York Magazine, Huffington Post UK, and Mamma Mia. Their first book, Raising Them, Our Adventure in Gender Creative Parenting, was just released on September 8th. I got to read the book before the release, and I highly recommend it. It was amazing chatting with Kyle about growing up Mormon, gender creative parenting, gender stereotypes, recognizing our own internalized bigotry, and how we can cultivate a more inclusive, empowering world for everyone, including ourselves. I absolutely adore Kyle, and I know you will too. Enjoy this awesome discussion. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp.com slash gay to check it out and get what? 10% off. The best part is you don't even have to leave your house. They offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor, video calls, phone calls, real-time chat, and direct messaging. All counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board. In other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. Kyle Myers, welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. Thank you for having me, Tyler. I am so happy to have you here, and I just want to get into it. Tell us who you are and what the hell you do. My name is Kyle Myers. I am a genderqueer woman who uses they, them, and she, her pronouns. I'm an out queer person who is married to a lovely cisgender man named Brent. I have a PhD in sociology and I'm faculty at the University of Utah and I'm the parent of one remarkable four and a half year old kid named Zoomer. Um, I'm probably best known for being a public advocate for gender creative parenting, which we get to talk about today. And I wrote a memoir called Raising Them, which is all about my decision and experience of raising Zoomer without an assigned gender. Um, so in a nutshell, I encourage people to shake up childhood gender socialization so that we can create a more equitable world for kids and grownups. Listen, after reading your book, Raising Them, Our Adventure in Gender Creative Parenting, 
Kyle, I have to admit, I am low-key obsessed with you, okay? I loved the book, and my partner and I actually decided a few years ago that when we have kids, we will do gender creative parenting. So reading about your journey was very informative and quite inspirational. For those who do not know, though, would you just break down what gender creative parenting is? Sure. And thanks for saying that. I'm really happy to know that you were inspired by my story. It just felt like this like big heap of vulnerability that I'm putting out into the world. So I'm really glad that it resonated with you and you liked it. And also when you and your partner have a kid, you will be in such great company because there's this growing and vibrant community of gender creative families all across the U.S. and all across the globe. So that's been such an incredible thing to be a part of. Um, so to break down what gender creative parenting is for my partner, Brent and I, gender creative parenting means a few things. So first we didn't assign a gender to our child Zoomer when they were born. And we don't disclose Zoomer's genitals to people who do not need to know. And we used they, them pronouns for Zoomer until they could tell us what pronouns they wanted us to use. Um, and this is all happening while we're creating an environment where Zoomer can learn about gender and play with gender and find their own way to a gender identity and expression that they decide fits instead of us telling them what they are. And I think it's important to know that there's two major like umbrella reasons of why we do gender creative parenting. So the first is because we believe that gender is up to an individual and doesn't need to be assigned by other folks. And we wanted to hold space for the fact that Zoomer could be non-binary or cisgender or transgender or intersex. And we just wanted to support them wherever they landed on the gender spectrum. And then the second reason is that Brent and I believe that binary, like traditional binary, hyper feminine and hyper masculine gender socialization can really limit the experiences of kids and adults. And so we wanted to shield our kid from gender stereotypes and gender discrimination for as long as we possibly could. Oh, so beautiful. Well, in your book and in your wonderful TED talk that you did, you mentioned studies of how enforcing gender stereotypes to children affect them in adulthood, like how men are twice as likely to die from accidents and unintentional injuries than women, and how that is rooted in these defaults that were brought into these gender stereotypes. Uh, as someone with a degree in gender studies and a PhD in sociology, <laughs> would you just talk about some of these fascinating studies and findings that you have come across? Yeah, I I could talk about this all day, which <laughs> it sucks that there's like actually so many disparities, right, to actually like talk about and learn about and try to um, figure out what's going on. I'm kind of this like reverse Hansel and Gretel of like trying to check out like these breadcrumbs, like of these adulthood gender inequities that I see and like trying to see like where are these coming from? Where are these roots, you know, of these gender stereotypes. And have you seen my big fat Greek wedding? Yes. So, you know, the, the dad is like, give me a word and I'll tell you how the root of the word is Greek. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm yeah. like, I am that dad with like my <laughs> bottle of Windex. I'm just like, give me an adulthood gender disparity and I, I will show you how it got its start in childhood. And so <laughs> it's just, it's just how I, how I see it's how I see it. So I'll, I'll give you three examples just to try to like break it down so we can see it from a few different angles. The first is the gender wage gap. So women who are mothers make less money than women who are not mothers. And they also make less money than men who are fathers. So this is called the motherhood penalty. And we see that women of color experience the biggest wage gap. But this wage gap doesn't just start in adulthood after high school graduation and you get into your first job. In childhood, girls are making less allowance than boys, even though girls tend to do more chores than boys. And 
and all kids, right, should be contributing to household chores. Like it's a thing that we have to do as grownups and it sucks, but it's a part of adulthood. But wouldn't it be great if we were all sharing in this type of life admin and to be able to show kids early that they deserve to be paid equitably for equal work so we could really start closing that gender wage gap in in childhood by how we're teaching kids about about work and about money and about whose work is more important, like in everybody's work could be equal. And then another example is fathers being treated like less capable parents than mothers. So there's this cultural stigma around boys playing with dolls. So they aren't given dolls to play with as often as girls are. Their dolls are yanked out of their hands in childhood. Um, often boys are not encouraged to develop caretaking skills either like through playing house or they're not given opportunities to babysit so these boys grow up to be men who don't have as much experience taking care of children so they're presumed to be incompetent parents and they're not given as much of a chance to learn or be involved as a primary caretaker with their own children so if we want engaged dads, of course, we should be nurturing boys to be caretakers. And I think the the final example that I'll give is heterosexualization starts in childhood with children being assumed this default that they're straight and they're only asked if they have a crush on someone of another gender. And there's this hypersexualization that happens in childhood. And so going through an entire childhood and adolescence where your sexuality is repressed, which happened to me, can lead to internalized homophobia and having difficulty coming out as an adult or living an authentic life. So I think we could have much more positive outcomes if we didn't assign sexualities to kids and instead teach them about diverse relationships. So they know being straight is far from the only option. So I think that it's important to be aware that when we're talking about gender disparities, there are multiple layers to gender-based oppression, right? This oppression happens on an ideological, cultural level and an institutional level and an interpersonal level and an individual level. And we have to tackle gender stereotypes from all these different angles and early and often if we want to make progress. What are some misconceptions uh, about gender creative parenting that you get? I'm really curious about this question. Oh, yeah. Well, they kind of all fall into one of five camps or something, you know, like I've kind of I rarely hear new misconceptions about gender creative parenting these days. I think one of the misconceptions is that children who are raised without an assigned gender will be confused and struggle to form their own identity. And that's just not true. These kids know who they are. They arrive at their identity. They're not, you know, scrambling to find meaning for themselves. And they also understand sex and gender in a much more nuanced way than a lot of their peers who might have been assigned a gender. And and frankly, they have a more nuanced understanding of sex and gender than a lot of adults I know. So there's there's so much information, you know, that these children are given that they're not confused, right? They're given so much language to be able to try different terms on and really figure out what fits. And I think that that's great. Um, there's also a misconception that gender creative parenting is trying to force kids to be transgender or non-binary or queer. And that's not true. The way this way of parenting just provides space for the possibility of any gender for a kid. And it provides this soft landing for kids who are trans or non-binary or queer, uh, right? Like every single transgender friend of mine was raised in a home where they were being forced to be cisgender, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like, I think that we have to kind of like step back a little bit and be like, well, I'm queer and I was raised by straight parents and there wasn't an out queer for miles, right? Like never met one, never heard of them. Queer, who is she? Like, did you know, so <laughs> I just think like kids know who they are. Our job as parents is to just make it really comfy and cozy for them to be who they are. Um, there's a misconception that gender creative kids will be bullied 
frankly, all kids can, you know, like can be bullied for different reasons. Um, I was bullied for a lot of different reasons. Um, but Zoomer has made great friendships and kids don't care about gender. Couldn't care less that Zoomer didn't have an assigned gender in the first few years of their life. Um, kids don't care about gender unless they're taught to care about gender, right? Like bullying is another thing, right? That is kind of intergenerational or is is seeped in some of their own trauma. So we just work on trying to raise Zoomer to be a kind person and hope that the other parents, you know, you know, of the peers in their classroom are doing the same thing. Um, I also don't think that like this misconception that gender creative kids will be bullied is a reason to be like, okay, I throw in the towel. I'll do the hyper gendered parenting, (laughs) you know? Um, we're raising resilient kids, I think. Um, and then like the last misconception about gender creative parenting is that people think it's so, it must be so difficult to do on a daily basis. We must encounter hostile situations all day, every day. And that's, (laughs) that's not true. I mean, but, but I, I do think that that misconception is fair because I, I thought those things when I was pregnant, you know, just like, Oh shit. Like, what are we signing up for? You know, and my brain, because I had never been a parent before, like I didn't have that experience. Like my brain would just go through these like hypotheticals of just like, this is going to be so hard, but it's not. Our life is so enjoyable and people are not jerks to our face about our parenting approach. I know that like millions of people have things to say about me on the internet and I do not care. Like parenting, (laughs) parenting this way is so rewarding and I, I just would do it all again in a heartbeat. And I, and that, that's like one of my biggest misconceptions that I try to correct is like, yes, you might have a few situations here and there, but it is so joyful and fulfilling. Something around gender creative parenting. I think adults who might be scared to discuss certain topics with their children. Maybe adults who have come from a very strict place in their life where it is religion or gender or whatever we're talking about. But I think a lot of adults preconceive what a child might think, putting their own stereotypes on that child, maybe without even realizing that they're doing that. I remember talking to a specific person, I'll keep them anonymous, but uh, and saying that I no longer felt comfortable telling their children that Enrique and I were roommates. (laughs) He was just my roommate that followed me around everywhere. And I wanted to be able to say that he was my partner or boyfriend. And and the kids, by the way, their kids were not even super young. So it seemed just bizarre as of that point that I was still being asked to lie to them. And I felt like they knew already anyway. So it was just weird. And the parent got angry with me, though, and asked, how could I require them to talk to their children about gay sex? And my response was, so I have a younger brother who had a girlfriend at the time who was introduced as my younger brother's girlfriend. So I simply asked them, I was like, well, have you talked to your children about my younger brother having sex with his girlfriend? And they were like, no, why would I? And I was like, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they did eventually tell the kids through a lot of talking it out. Um, And of course, the kids didn't give a crap. They Mm -hmm. did already have ideas. And so it wasn't a big deal. And it's just crazy the bigoted stereotypes adults force on children, maybe even out of protection, not saying it's necessarily bad all the time. It doesn't come from a bad place. But do you encounter this type of argument from parents, um, adults who may not be able to see past their own discriminating views, who are constantly trying to put their own bigotry onto their children? Oh, well, I feel lucky that my circle of my circle of friends are a lot like me, you know, and I think we're kind of leaning in to to this of, of trying to make sure that our kids learn a perspective that is different from, from the one that we learned as kids and that we had to spend a lifetime unlearning, you know? So I think being able to like lean in to these things that we feel uncomfortable about and like just taking a minute of like why do I 
feel all the feels about this, right? Like, what is it about this that is freaking me out? Is it that I don't know enough about it? Is it that I feel judgment about these types of people? Do I have like an experience in my past? You, you know, like whatever it is, I feel like I've really tried to show up with Zoomer and talk about anything they have questions about in a really age appropriate way and really trying to remove the stigma and bigotry around a lot of things. Like I just want, I don't want Zoomer to ever learn that bigotry. So we have to start really early, you know, in, in, in life. So I want to normalize diversity in identities and relationships and sexualities. Like we all have to do some deep inner work to address those feelings that we have and why we don't want to talk to kids about something. And I answer all Zoomers questions. And if I don't know the answer, I'll look it up. And I want Zoomer to know that there are so many ways to live life so that they can see themselves in those examples or be familiar with them so that they can treat others kindly. I feel like I've got the the only advice that I have for people who are just feeling all of this fear and like bigotry is like something happened. Like what happened to you, baby? You know, like, let's mm -hmm. like, let's talk about it because because you are going to pass this to your kid. And do you want to Right? there's some people who are like, they want to right? like, yeah. they're, you know, but yeah. I do think that like where I spend my time is I want to work. I want to like work with the people who are in that gray zone of like, I don't know why it freaks me out to talk about like masturbation with my kid. And it's like, well, let's hop in the time machine and talk about what happened to you when you were a kid, you know, and mm -hmm. when you were masturbating or how were you taught about it or whatever, you know, like, like there's so much, there's so many clues to our feelings in our past, right? Because we had to learn all these feelings from somewhere and we get to make a choice of, do we want to pass those feelings down? We, do we want our children to inherit the same stereotypes that we inherited? Or do we want to change this family tree a bit, you know? And I think that that's, that's what I'm going for. And I feel really lucky that like my parents are so loving and accepting so it's not like there's like some major pruning that I had to do on my family tree when it comes to like biases. But I just really want to make sure that Zoomer has a completely different um, understanding of diversity, you know, than I did and not be afraid of it, but just celebrate it. Listening to you talk, I am just flooded with so many memories from childhood of mm these stereotypes and it is just so crazy to me and stuff that yeah I am still struggling with and, mm. and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that I'm curious what are some examples from your own childhood that you're aware of anyway where gender stereotyping dictated what you did or what you thought you should do yeah well I I was raised in a religious culture in conservative, rural, white communities that had very distinct gender roles where women are expected to be wives and mothers. So I grew, I'm, I'm lucky because I grew up in a home with parents who weren't trying to shove me into the stereotypical role for girls, but my community didn't explicitly value or encourage girls and women seeking higher education or like creating independent lives for themselves. No one really talked to me about the possibility of having a career or being in a leadership position I was constantly pushed by the women in my community to care more about my appearance and to conform to mainstream feminine beauty standards. So in middle school, I cut my hair short and I was shamed for it. And I was told I needed to wear more makeup and more feminine clothes. And then when I started doing that, I was then told to tone it down, that my shorts were too short, that I should wear a one-piece swimsuit instead of a bikini because no man would want to marry me if I didn't value modesty. And so my my childhood and adolescence, it was really fun and I have good memories from that time, but it's so clear that my adulthood was being groomed for homemaking 
And according to the Mormon church, which I grew up in, like my purpose was to be married to a Mormon man and make lots of Mormon babies. And that's just, that is my memory, you know, of like what I was supposed to grow up to do. But when I was 18, I moved to Germany and I was a nanny for a family there and my whole world changed. Like I realized that I as an individual had value and that I could get an education and I could have a career and I could have an egalitarian partnership and I could have kids if I wanted to. But I learned that my identity didn't have to be tied up in like what I could be for a man. And like I live in Utah and I woke up this morning, this morning and checked the news and there was a headline that said for the third year in a row, Utah ranks as the worst state in the nation for gender equity. And women aren't getting as many graduate degrees as men are here. And women aren't working as much as men. Women aren't making as much money as men. There's more women who don't have health insurance. Like women aren't in political offices as much as men here on any level. And the influence of Utah culture, like in the, the, the influence of Utah culture's gender roles definitely has something to do with all of that. And that's what I grew up in, you know, like that's, that's, that was the context of how I learned about gender. So it's kind of a miracle that I am where I am today. (laughs) (laughs) I have that same feeling sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, something that really struck me hearing you right then is a duality that I definitely felt growing up. I'm sure a lot of people feel growing up of you might have parents or an intimate community that is somewhat supportive of you exploring and and being creative and not necessarily fitting a default. However, once you step outside of the front door, Mm. those same people are asking you to conform. Mm -hmm. And I think it is such a weird thing as a child to be able to play these two parts. And I think that's a lot to ask of children, anyone, even adults, but uh, especially children to ask them so early on that, yeah, you can be a pirate in this one room, but if you go out there, you gotta be a princess. Uh, mm. That's just the silliest thing to me. I, I love this line in your in your book, and it really does pertain to to this too. You say, my mom would sew church dresses with matching hair clips that my younger sister Mackenzie and I would wear. But we would immediately change into t-shirts, shorts, and keds when we got home. And we would play until we were covered in dirt and exhausted. Mm. And I do think that is terrific imagery of how We are expected to act a certain way in public and a certain way uh, behind closed doors. Mm. Being raised in the Mormon faith, being a female identifying person, what was that like from a more religious and spiritual standpoint? Were Mm. were you religious or spiritual as a child? And and what was that sensation like for you? Mm. So my family was most active in the church from the time I was born to about my ninth birthday. Like both of my parents, they hadn't grown up in the church, which is kind of uncommon. Like, you know, Mormonism is like really intergenerational. And so my parents both joined the church like later in life. Like my mom was like 17 and my dad was in his early 20s. The Mormon church, though, was like my whole life for the first nine years of my life. We went to church every Sunday. All our friends were in our congregation. Like everyone in our town was Mormon. Like truly the Mormon church, it's impossible to separate the Mormon church from my childhood. And in the church, all of the kids go to a program that's called primary. So like all genders, all ages, you know, from like, if you're not shitting in a diaper to like, if you're not bleeding on a maxi pad, like we were all together. (laughs) And so it was lovely though. There was like all genders, we were all combined and it was like a giant daycare, but it was actually really fun. And we'd sing songs and make crafts and learn how to be like good little Mormons. And this was in the nineties. And it was this time that was this gender neutral calm before the hyper gendered storm. And 
all the kids were playing in church together and learning together until we hit puberty. And that is when things started to shift. And the girls just got shuffled into a young women's program and really started being molded into marriage material. And the boys got shuffled into the young men's program and started learning all of these incredible life skills, like financial literacy, you know, and like going into Boy Scouts and all of this different public speaking. And so even though my family was no longer active in the church after, after I was nine, because my parents got divorced. And when I was a teenager, like I wasn't going to church. I didn't, I wasn't devout like my friends were, but because all of my friends were active Mormons, I didn't want to miss out on hanging out with them. Like they were yeah. all doing church activities. So that is what I did. I did the, the, the church activities because that's how I could hang out with my friends. And so there was these weekly activities or the Mormon summer camp. And I would just go because I had FOMO and I didn't want to miss out, you know, with, <laughs> with everybody. And so I'll tell you a little story that I think illustrates what the Mormon church wanted of young women and how I just totally could not meet their standards. It was good foresight for kind of like who I would become. But the young women's group would meet once a week to work on skills that would make us really great compliant housewives. And one week, the young women's and the young men's groups were going to combine to practice dating, right? Like, but supervised by church leaders in the Nuh-uh. church, in the church gymnasium. No. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. okay. So we were having like a lesson in courtship in, in like 2003, you know, like it's, it's true. So, so the girls were tasked with bringing a meal to the event and the boys were tasked with bidding on the meals to get the date with the girl who brought the best meal or whatever. Oh, so most, I just got goosebumps. Okay, <laughs> so, go ahead. <laughs> so most girls brought these beautiful, elaborate, from scratch, home-cooked meals, like multiple courses, farm-to-table casseroles, fresh squeezed limeade, like delicious desserts, like the whole nine yards. And I was a different kind of girl. And I was like growing up with like my bachelor dad. It was so fun. And I rocked up to the church with like a freshly baked DiGiorno frozen pizza (laughs) and a two liter bottle of root beer. And it was just like, and I'm like completely unapologetic about it. Like here I am. No, hell no. I'm not spending like hours in the kitchen, like preparing something for a man to eat, you know? And so I just, I just knew that throwing myself into marriage and motherhood and homemaking and this religion wasn't going to work for me. And it's fantastic that that, that it works for some other people. Um, at the time though, I didn't know exactly what I wanted cause I didn't have role models for any other way of life, but I knew I didn't want what everyone expected of me. And this like young, sweet 16 year old guy, like saw my offering and was like, that's what I'm here for, you know, and bid on a date with me and my frozen pizza. And we sat on a blanket on the gym floor and like had a really good time. So I I think like my growing up, I just simultaneously always felt like a little out of place, but also like I could be different and still belong in the community. And that's still true today. I was going to ask a follow up if you got any bids. And I'm just so happy that you got a bid. That's great. (laughs) Shout out to that guy. Go you. Um, (laughs) Well, with this religion and this type of mentality, Obviously, you didn't fit that. But I'm curious, spirituality wise, what did you think of spirituality at the time? Did you have any connection to that word or concept? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, So there is a phrase and I mean, there's there's this phrase in all religions, but like in the Mormon church, we there was, we were often, you know, asked if we were, could feel the spirit, right. Or like told that if we don't behave a certain way or if we're doing certain things or thinking certain thoughts, then the spirit won't be with us. And so that, that term is totally familiar. Like I don't, I don't think that I was learning it, how I think about spirituality today, but I just loved the community that religion brought to my life. And I loved that there was a shared sense of purpose and meaning for life, right? Like as a kid, right? Like you're just inundated in this like phrase, like we're the chosen people. And 
And if we do the right thing, then we get to like go and live with Heavenly Father for eternity. And like we're just sold, you know, this bill of goods that like that's what we should want. And that's the only thing that we should want. And so I really loved the lessons of being kind to one another and helping people who need it and not being judgmental of others. And I I think that is kind of synonymous with spirituality to how I think of it now of like those feelings that I have, you know, when I do feel like I'm being a good person and helpful, um, I do feel this kind of like, I feel those same endorphins that I, you know, that I, that I think I was kind of like taught to feel as a kid. Um, I've never been involved in another organized religion, but Mormonism and especially Mormonism in Utah, where Mormons are the majority of the population, the religion is really entangled in everything. So I just couldn't compartmentalize religion in my childhood. It wasn't like a thing that we did for a couple of hours on a Sunday, like a lot of other religions. Like if you're Mormon and you're an active Mormon, you are all in as a Mormon. You know, you're reading scriptures every day, going to church for a few hours every Sunday, doing family home evening every Monday, having missionaries over for dinner, going to activities like church potlucks, all the holiday parties are related with church. Like it's just being Mormon was a way of life. Um, But I also think I became aware of the inequities in the church pretty early in my life. And I tell a story in my book about being an eight-year-old and learning the pretty universal and devastating reality that boys and men were considered to be more valuable and important than girls and women in my community. And I just hated how much control there was in the church. And I hated the rules and the expectations and like how badly people were made to feel for doing things that I didn't really think were bad. I just hated the in-group mentality and the judgment of people who were different from us. Um, So I don't think I was cognitively aware enough as a Mormon kid to critically think about what I was feeling. But I think I was aware enough that some things weren't jiving with me. Like when my parents got divorced when I was nine, I was bullied like ferociously because of it, because divorce was so uncommon in my community and deemed as this like personal and moral failure that like immediately also gets passed down to children. Like because my parents divorced, like I was doomed. And it's just like kind of this like mark against me for like, you know, parents would ask as I was growing up, like if my parents were still together and when I would say, no, they weren't like, they would strongly encourage their children not to date me, you know? And I knew my parents, I knew my parents would be happier divorced though. So I struggled to hold these differing truths. And, um, when my parents divorced, I lived with my dad in a rural town in the Utah desert. And I'd sometimes go to church or church activities with my friends But that's really when I started detaching myself from my Mormon identity was as this like tween. And it just became more of an extracurricular activity in my life rather than the main event. But I still tried to hold on to those like those things that made me feel good. Right. Like I I, I still think I feel those emotions of when I was a kid and could feel the spirit. I think I can feel that now when, um, you know, in certain situations when I'm living my best life and like living my purpose and realizing that like, Oh, that's not linked to Mormonism. That's not linked to this religion. That's not linked to like my worthiness for membership in this church. Like it's just this like universally good flutter that you can feel as a good person. And anybody can feel that. I 1000.99999% agree with you. Anyone who listens to the podcast knows that I am a firm believer that spirituality comes from within us. So we bring spirituality into a space, not the other way around. And because of that, we can make a lot of practices and day-to-day activities spiritual, form a deeper connection to ourselves and others and this world. And we can have these spiritual experiences with or without religion. A way that you seem connected with yourself is your sexuality. And it was actually really fascinating as I read about your continued coming out story as a gender creative parent, it reminded me of 
coming out as a person from the LGBTQ plus community, which you have also done. And I'm sure you continue to do since you are married to Brent, a cis straight man. What is it like identifying as queer, being proud of that aspect of who you are, while being in what looks like from the outside anyway, a heteronormative relationship? Yeah. Well, I think Brent and I are a good example of things aren't always what they appear. And I kind of try to carry that perspective when I look at all different types of relationships, right? Like I only know what you tell me about your relationship and I don't really want to assume anything else or like fall back on these default hetero narratives, you know? So oh my God, I'm like, repeat that, please. What? <laughs> Not assuming something? That's <laughs> crazy. Okay. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. (laughs) So I'm, I am queer and I, I, for me, that means I am attracted to, and I want to have romantic and sexual relationships with people of all types of genders. And I told Brent that I was queer in the first week we were dating. And Brent was like, cool, you know, like, like there were no issues, you know, no issues with that. And Brent is a really incredible partner. We're compatible in so many ways and we have an egalitarian partnership and we equally share parenting, which was so important to me. And I wouldn't have partnered up or parented with anybody else who, you know, like who wouldn't be committed to those things. We communicate about what we need and want all the time. And we try not to fall into those traditional scripts of a hetero marriage Instead, we make our marriage and relationship what we want it to be. And that includes having space for me to be queer and open about it and explore my gender identity and expression and also for Brent to be his own person and to continue growing as a person and having connections with people, right? Like how boring would that be if like I got married when I was 28 and I'm like, okay, I'm just like shutting up shop. I'm never, ever going to like want to have a connection with another person like I damn well hope to to like at least be a hundred you know and like I just think (laughs) it's wonderful to be able to like really come to a relationship and be like let's like talk about this like let's talk about monogamy let's talk about polyamory let's talk about jealousy and expectations you know like let's talk about this and I would love for that conversation to just become so much more mainstream um but I'm really committed to constantly coming out as queer and kind of being a you know just like a a model of that because bisexual erasure is so real and we need to talk about it more and the second someone who's like a femme you know femme presenting person gets married to someone who is a man like their bisexuality just like disappears, you, you, yeah. you know, like, like from, yeah, from an out, from an outsider's perspective. Right. Yeah. So I'm committed to coming out as queer. So people don't think I'm straight because I'm not. And I don't want people to think that my being in a relationship with a man means that I don't or can't have a queer identity in life. So people make so many assumptions about me and Brent and I'm sure, you know, you and Enrique and And our relationship, and I just like helping people understand that a lot of those assumptions are wrong. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) Get over it, you know, get over it. It's not your marriage. I mean, it's just a crazy uh, thing to look at someone else and to think that them being a person who has lived a full life, that we can look at them in the matter of like five minutes and sum them up. Uh, is a really crazy social thing that we've come to <laughs> come to, to where we feel as a person that we are capable of doing that. It's it's really baffling to me. But I am uh, very appreciative of you and Brent and how open you two are. And yeah, what an example. And something else that I am I really admire about you is how aware you are in all aspects of your life, um, even through this conversation, but also in the book, you you mention your privilege, the fact that you are white and the various advantages that you do have in our society. And you also talk about how 
parenting Zoomer has made you look inward, analyzing your own biases and the way you do look at gender and other types of stereotypes in our world and in our, in our society. Are there things you've learned about yourself through this process that might have surprised you? Yes. 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 I had been like studying gender. I'd been in grad school. I had been teaching gender and sexuality for years before I ever became a parent. And I do feel like I had been doing like a lot of work in that time on myself and my perspective and my biases. But I have done more gender exploration in the last four years since becoming Zoomer's parent than I did in the three decades before becoming Zoomer's parent. Like for me, gender creative parenting, this this intentional, constant daily practice cracked me right open in in really the best of ways. Like it kind of made me realize like I know nothing, you know, you know, and I just was really <laughs> like I knew more than most people about gender. But I think that really committing to this parenting practice helped me realize this is a life's work, you know, like this, there's no, you, you never arrive, <laughs> like you just keep going. And I think that that's really important. And this really beautiful thing happened while I was making sure to keep the chains of the patriarchy and the gender binary away from Zoomer. It also helped me untangle myself from the chains or at least really recognize how much sexism I had to unlearn and unpack in myself and my perspective around me. So I also started using they them pronouns for myself over the last year and I have slid into the term genderqueer feeling really good for me and I was pretty like high femme a few years ago. And then I started playing with my gender more and trying different things like cutting my hair short and growing my armpit hair and consciously thinking about whether or not I like things instead of assuming that I should, right? Like there's so much performativity that goes into gender and it was just kind of nice to like stop for a second and go, okay, you've been doing this because you were taught to do this. You know, you get validation for doing this. Do you like doing this? You know, and just like letting myself like actively think about it and like, no, I don't actually like doing this or going, yeah, I do. And maybe this is ingrained because of the socialization and that's why I like it. Uh, you know, like it's really impossible to pull out what's nature, what's nurture, you know, yeah. like that, that's tough. But I, I just think I surprised myself to learn how fluid my own gender is and I'm excited to see how much more fluid it will be over the rest of my life, right? Or maybe, I mean, maybe I'll just like pour some concrete around myself in one spot in the gender spectrum, but that's really hard to believe that I'll do that because it's so fun and like liberating for me to be able to play with this, you know, and just kind of be on this like gender roller coaster of just like, how do I want to express myself? There's so many parallels to what you're saying too about gender expression and the ideas of religion and spirituality, actually, because I think something a lot that I talk about on here is the idea of not having answers and knowing that we will not ever have answers. And so to get comfortable with being ever changing and mm -hmm. to embrace that and enjoy that and the act of growing and evolving and learning about ourselves and others and our world, that to me is part of spirituality. And I just think, yeah, it's a beautiful way to look at life, though, is that we're never going to arrive. And, and so we're always on the go. We're always learning. And I think that's something really beautiful and a great way to look at our journeys. I love that parallel. I may, I will, I will steal that from you and I will use that. I think that that's a really lovely, just like in religion, right? There's, it's so faith-based, right? That there's just faith that things are going to work out and be okay. And the universe or a higher power are looking out for you that that could totally be transferred onto gender, right? Like let's just lean into the unknown and revel in it, right? And celebrate it, you know, just that like we don't, we don't know everything. And isn't that beautiful? 
yeah, we don't know shit, basically. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> that is really the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, thank you so much for your amazing work and all that you do. Where can people find you, your book, and keep up with all that you're doing? I am on Instagram at Kyle underscore Myers, and people can check out my website, kylemyers.com. People can buy Raising Them um, from a local queer-owned or Black-owned bookseller, or they can get it online on Amazon or Bookshop. Really, it's going to be anywhere, anywhere books are sold. (laughs) I actually can't wait to see it in the wild, but I'm like kind of sad because like I might not see it in an airport because I'm not going to go to an airport because of COVID. (laughs) What are airports? (laughs) So if you're at an airport and you see it, can you please take a picture and send it to me? I just had a, um, uh, yesterday I had a moment where I got so sad, like genuinely sad because I missed being drunk on the subway. (laughs) And like going out clubbing to like 4 a.m. and coming back and like being slightly fearful for my life, you know, Um, (laughs) but I was I really like got to a point where I so missed that. Um, But yeah, anyone in airport, snap that picture and send it. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Kyle, for talking with me. I so, so appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tyler. This convo has so many layers and is filled with nuance. If you enjoyed it, I actually suggest you listen to it again. Each time that I've listened to it, I've pulled something different from it or have been hit by a different childhood memory where I battle gender stereotypes. It's kind of hard to pick my top takeaways, but I'll give it a try. Number one. All right, I have to get this off my chest. So in the interview, I said biases. And Kyle says, biases. And what is so funny is before I said it in my head, I was literally like, am I going to say biases or biases? I quickly chose biases. Then Kyle later says biases. And I became a self-conscious bitch. Then I started saying it in my head. And you know when you do that, and no matter if it is right or wrong, it starts to automatically sound wrong just because you've been repeating it so much. So I felt like I had to look it up just to be certain. And yes, both pronunciations are correct. So you don't have to concern yourself with this anymore. Okay, fine. Let's be real. I don't have to concern myself with this anymore. (laughs) But speaking of biases or biases, take note of your own internalized dialogue. Do you talk to yourself and others in a binary language? If so, intentionally try to stop it and allow yourself to think outside of these two stereotypes. You don't have to fit them. And guess what? You never fully will. This also extends to our sexuality. Nothing is concrete. So be willing to question and evolve. Number two. Well, number one was so long, I kind of forgot what number two was. Oh yeah. There are two umbrellas for why people typically choose gender creative parenting. The first belief is that people should get to choose their own gender. The second belief is that hypergendering causes trauma. Number three, gender stereotyping and discrimination starts before people are even born, and these stereotypes are everywhere. Number four, what if our inside life matched our outside life? What if we didn't feel like we had to pretend all the damn time? Try to incorporate elements of your inside life to your outside life, little bit by little bit, and live a more authentic, joyful life. Number five, newsflash, we cannot possibly sum up anyone in the matter of five minutes. Assuming has its place, for sure, it can protect and guide us, but know that you can't possibly fully know or understand someone after a five-minute convo. You just can't. Number six, gender exploration is like spirituality. We will never arrive. As humans, we are ever evolving, ever growing. Our taste buds change. Our favorite colors change. Our looks change. We continue to change. And that includes our spirituality. And yes, that even includes our gender and sexual expression. We can identify with something today and identify with something different five years from now. And that's not only okay, but it's good. I have posted links in the show notes for Kyle and their book, Raising Them. 
Even if you aren't interested in gender creative parenting, I actually found the book very helpful as a workbook, a way for me to look inward and analyze my own baggage. So even if it's for yourself, I suggest you check it out. And definitely make sure to follow and subscribe to Have a Blessed Gay wherever you listen. And find the podcast on social media at Have a Blessed Gay on all the platforms. I share infographics, memes, motivational BS, and info about all my guests and current events. So there's definitely some goodies there. Also, please do rate and leave a quick review and reach out to me. I love hearing from you and where you're at on your spiritual journeys. Now, if you are struggling and you aren't able to laugh it off, I always post helplines in the show notes. So please call them if you need to. Now, as you're doing this internalized work, please remember this. You are special. You are purposeful. And you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.